Well, hey, I want you to turn to uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27. Well, joy it is always uh, to bring the Word of God to come to be on this campus. We're so thankful for Dr. Horton and uh, his great leadership and great leadership of this school as it always has been through this, these years and churches that he's pastored and uh, also in our Baptist State Convention and now in this particular uh, arena and uh, the great things that are taking place at Fruitland. His helpmate, Lisa, who's right by his side, what a great, uh, uh, you can't imagine life without each other, right? That's, that's the correct answer. Uh, so, um, you know, that's, uh, that's it after all these years, and we've been married 41 years, so I know y'all are probably around the same uh, arena. Hey, uh, Matthew chapter 27, it's always a joy, especially this time of year, to preach on the cross. We're going to talk about the cross today, and hopefully we can glean some great truths from this passage in Matthew 27. We're going to be in verses 50 through 56. Now, we're going to come to right at the point in time that Jesus has just, uh, at the point of, of, of giving up the ghost, it is finished into your hands, I commend my spirit. So let's uh, begin with verse number 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And then, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And so when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake, and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were there looking on from afar, and among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and, mother, the, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Let's pray. Father, bless now this scripture. Speak it to our heart. I pray that today, as you have a word for us every time we open your word, that you would speak to every heart here today. Give us what we need today to be able to pass on to others as it's been given to us. And so, Lord, now would you bless and honor your word. We'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what a great uh, privilege it is always to preach on the cross, especially this particular time of the year. This kind of becomes our Super Bowl as we think about the cross, we think about the resurrection. Uh, it's a wonderful time to, uh, to again, to reevaluate that old, old story of Jesus that never gets old, the same saving gospel that is true to each of us. We think about this passage of Scripture and the effect that it had, especially upon the first century church, and upon us today, it is uh, without doubt that it took place. Some would doubt it today. Lee Strobel, in his book, The Case for Christ, points out the fact that uh, this is the most attested fact uh, of history that has ever taken place. As a matter of fact, even not only with New Testament writers and historians in that way, those that are secular individuals writing upon this subject, it's, he says it's almost embarrassing the amount of, of evidence that is presented concerning the crucifixion and the, the resurrection of Christ compared to other literature that is out there even in the secular world. It is overwhelming. 
And so it is with that thought that uh, his own life was turned around, one from being an atheist, um, agnostic at best, uh, and one who was opposed to the gospel until his wife one day was saved. Hopefully you've read the book or you've seen the movie and you know the story there. But it's because of that overwhelming evidence that, that uh, Lee Strobel then could doubt it no more, him being a, a, um, uh, an editor there of the Chicago Tribune who looked into the subject of things that are taking place uh, all across the spectrum, and he had to have proof for that which he was studying. And so as he began to do his own individual study, uh, he came upon the fact that there's no way to deny uh, the, the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's another one who bears witness today to what took place there, and that is the centurion. This centurion is one of four that's mentioned in Scripture, one of those being the one who came, his son, of course, being sick, being ill, and, and he had belief that this, indeed, all you have to do is speak the word. We think about other centurions that are dealt with, uh, like uh, uh, Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, uh, the centurion Julius, Julius who uh, was with Paul on his voyage to Rome, and the strategic parts that they played. And then we have the centurion here at the foot of the cross. It's the execution day. It's the day when they had so many times executed criminals, those who had been charged, and to them, it was just another day. How many people walk into our churches thinking it's just another day? It's just another Sunday. It's just another service. I'm here just to satisfy somebody who's been on my back begging me to come to church. But they never knew that right between the eyes, the Holy Spirit was going to hit them and convince them of the power of the cross. That's what happened to the centurion on that day, and that's what I want us to look at today. What was it that arrested this particular centurion and caused him to cry out, truly, this was the Son of God. Uh, Luke says that truly this was a righteous man, and so we have two great instances there of what actually was said by the centurion. I think we probably could link them together, and we would have the basis of what was said on that particular day. And so when Jesus was on the cross, everything that took place was under the power of the centurion. All that the soldiers did, everything that was taking place was upon his back. And he oversaw what was taking place, and he knew everything that took place. For that six hours on the cross, between 9 a.m. and 3 p.m., he saw everything, he heard everything. And so at the moment where Jesus... Uh, finally gives up the ghost, as we say so many times, and he cried out to his father, it is finished into your hands, I commend my spirit. It was then, with all that begins to take place, that this passage speaks about, that the centurion himself was convinced enough to say, truly, this was that righteous man, the son of the living God. And so what was it that convinced him? I think there are some convincing proofs here that when we preach on the cross of Christ, there is the power of the cross. Listen, you'll never get away from it. You can try to preach to people's needs all that you want to. You can preach to social issues. But our job is to preach the cross of Christ. It is salvation to any person who will trust and believe. That's our job, and that's what God's given us to do. 
So what is it about this convincing power of the cross that is that which arrested the heart of this centurion? I think we have some evidences here. What was it that got a hold of him? I think, first of all, the words of Jesus himself. I think it was the things that he heard said on the cross and even his actions that he was a part of at that particular time. He had witnessed everything, oversaw the nailing to the cross, another criminal, someone else that is being crucified on this day. But he heard every one of the seven sayings from the cross that day. He heard everything that was said by the Lord Jesus Christ. When he looked down upon those who were gambling at his feet for his own clothing, he heard the words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You never know what is being said and how we act and what we're doing around other people that may move them to Christ, that may move them to make a decision for Christ. But that's what we find here, that the centurion was probably moved in, in many ways by what was said. Uh, the repentant thief came with a word of faith. What did what the centurion recognize? He recognized that though Jesus was challenged uh, to, to, to bring them all down from the cross, save yourself and us, the other thief said, do you not fear God knowing that we deserve this punishment, but this man has done nothing wrong? The centurion is hearing this exchange that is taking place, and he hears the Lord Jesus say to this, this thief that's expressing faith here, today you'll be with me in paradise. Wow. What a great word of pardon, and he knew that this day would be the last day and that his, the thief's legs would be broken and that he would meet him in paradise. What a great word of promise. All these things get a person to thinking. We get discouraged sometimes because a person hearing the gospel for the first time does not respond to our witness, does not respond to the message, does not respond to our teaching. But understand that the Holy Spirit is working all along in the hearts and lives of so many people. And that he's doing a work and he is convincing them. And just like whether it's, a, it's an ear of corn or whether it's a butterfly in the cocoon, it's not going to take place until it's the right time. And that's what we pray toward, that our, even our own children will not rush them through the baptistry when they first ask it, start asking those questions when they're two years old and they start talking about wanting to be baptized. We don't rush them through the baptistry, do we? We want to make sure that it's for real and they understand the concept of sin and that they can be guilty of that even in disobeying parents and, uh, and the way that they can act. So that he heard, I think the centurion heard the, the, the cry in that way. I think he also heard uh, Jesus tenderly say to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Uh, John, behold your mother. You take care of her from now on. Uh, anybody is moved at the sound of taking care of a mother. Uh, someone said to me one day, and this is before my mother had passed, but said, you know, it's going to be a tough day when you lose your mother. Nobody is like your mother to you, and, and so it'll be, a, it'll be a tough day. But I think the centurion heard this. He heard the fourth cry from the cross when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, many theologians believe that what Jesus was doing was actually quoting much, if not the entire Psalm 22 when he hung on the cross because there are so many references to what was said back there a thousand years before Christ. But he heard that. What did that do to the centurion's heart? You know, the word can't be taken back. 
His word lodges in hearts. We don't know the witness where somebody may hear this or they may hear that. We don't know what it's doing in their life. Maybe he heard the physical agony there when he cried for the fact that he thirsted and that his, his tongue was parched there. Psalm 22 prophetically said, My tongue clings to my jaws, and you've brought me to the dust of death. And then he could hear the triumphant cry, It is finished. What a great word that is brought forth. Uh, as we were working on this in our dress rehearsal the other day, uh, we were talking to Jesus and kind of bringing him along in the ways that you need to say certain things. And, you know, this is not simply a, it is finished. This was not a simple letting out, letting go, and drifting out. This is a cry of victory today. Max Licato says in his book, It Happened One Friday, that this was a roar that sliced the silence. It wasn't a yell. It wasn't a scream. It was a roar like a lion's roar. This was the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one that's come forth as our Savior. It is finished. And so he knew he must be about his father's business. His entire life had been lived to this purpose. Even as he said at the age of 12, didn't you know I must be about my father's business? As he said, I came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give my life a ransom for many. And so he knew the purpose that he came. The centurion is taking it in and finally to commend his spirit to his father in heaven and then to die. Quotation from Psalm 31 here. And, and the last words that the centurion heard from the lips of Jesus was a prayer of committal of his life. That this wasn't just another death. This wasn't just burying someone else, but this was truly someone special. I think it was the words of Jesus that convinced the centurion. But there's a second thing that happens here in this passage of Scripture, and I think it is the torn temple veil. Verse 51 says, As soon as Jesus died that the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. I can imagine somebody running through the streets when Jesus has died and everything has taken place like it was at that particular moment and saying, the veil of the temple has been torn. What is this world coming to? What is going to happen next because of what they were experiencing at that particular time? It was at the moment of death, it was as if the great hands of heaven reached down and took the top of that veil and split it right in the middle from top to bottom. God's saying there's now a way and access, not behind the curtain, but I am that curtain. I'm the one that you have to come through. Ancient historian Josephus says it this way. As he says, you know, the veil was some 60 feet long, some 30 feet high, and it was the thickness of the palm of a man's hand. Some have tried to explain the tearing of the veil as the natural means of the earthquake that accompanied this, but the veil was woven in such thick fabric that it was impossible to tear it in this particular way. You could understand in some ways if it was torn from bottom to top, but from top to bottom, and so the centurion is hearing all of this. All of this is working against him on this particular day as he's hearing that. And the way to God has been opened. Hebrews 10, 19 and 20 says, Therefore, brethren, having the boldness to enter the holiest of the blood of Jesus by a new and living way, which he consecrated through a, 
for us through the veil that is his flesh. It speaks of his own flesh being ripped and torn. And we'll not get in today to the physical sufferings of Jesus, but I would urge you to go back to an article written in the Journal of American Medical Association, uh, March 21st, uh, somewhere around uh, 80, 81, somewhere in there, and you'll find a doctor speaking on the physical death of Jesus and how horrific it must have been. I know that this taking place spoke to the centurion. It spoke to the priest. We've got, an ex we've got an example of that a little bit later on as the church was being formed. In Acts chapter 6, verse 7, it reminds us that the word of God spread and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of who? The priests were obedient to the faith. I think it moved upon their heart. It's the convincing power of the cross that the temple, the veil of the temple was torn in the, the midst. Well, let's go to a third convincing proof, and that is the earthquake that the last part of verse 51 speaks about. And the earthquake and the rocks were split. The centurion knew that this earthquake and the splitting of the rocks was no coincidence. How did it just happen at this particular time? I think he also had witnessed that about 12 noon that the, the sky turned dark and the sun refused to shine upon the face of those who crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know that the wind was blowing. I imagine it was. And it was darker than it had ever been before. When you read the synoptic gospels and you find out the situation on that day, you knew that something was taking place. Some have said that it could have been a solar eclipse that was taking place, and of course that was very rare. And the people would have become so frightened for their lives that probably many of them would have, would have ran home fearing a, a tremendous storm that was going to take place. One commentator had an interesting thought about this, and he said he believed that every rock there began to crack and to split open. Beneath the feet of the centurion, the rocks uh, of every shape and size literally began to pop open. Now, we don't know that to be true, but the Bible does say that the rocks split open. To stand there in the witness of what can take place in just a few moments of time. Back in uh, uh, January of 2010, a, a 7.0 earthquake hit the island of Haiti. And you know that at that particular moment, in a matter of seconds, over 200,000 people went into eternity. Some of our groups, and maybe you went as well, we went into July uh, after that and helped with some of the reconstruction and building of homes of our Baptist men did, along with Samaritan's Purse. And, and then we went back in January, one year later on that particular day. We went to an area that had mass graves, and it was a place that there were hundreds of black crosses that had been set up in that area where there was just a mass grave where they buried all of those people, an earthquake that takes place. We talked to uh, Dr. Vlad at that particular time, and he said, you, you can't imagine the screaming, you can't imagine the horror of the moment and the rumbling where you could hardly stand up that began to take place. I don't know what it was like on this occasion here, but the centurion knew that it, it was synchronized perfectly with the death of this Jesus who was called the Christ. Something is taking place, and I think it was a convincing proof 
of what was taking place. Listen, the rocks may have split open, but the rock of ages was not moved. He accomplished the work on the cross that he was sent to do. The centurion was tremendously moved. But I want us to move to a fourth point here. It's one that has been speculated upon. We don't know the all that's written here, and you can read in some things to it if you want to, but it says that the graves burst open in verses 52 and 53, and many bodies of the saints who have fallen asleep were raised. Now, I don't know about you, but I know who else is going to be running down the street if I would have saw that. There's going to be a lot of people running when you see this. Now, the wording here lets us believe that many of those who slept, these were probably even contemporaries of those who were alive at that day and time. And they're walking the streets. They had died. And we began to think about that. The best that I can tell you from some of the things that I have studied and read on this, uh, we have to remember that this is not a type of resurrection body. Jesus was the firstborn. He was the first to be raised. So this was not a type of glorified body, but this is the body coming back like that of Lazarus that came back to life at this time, walking again. Here's my thought on that. What's worse than dying once except to know that you've got to die again? And you think about that, and that was true for Lazarus. That was true for a number of people. But what a great miracle. And when these people start walking around and no doubt word spread, you know word spreads fast, not just in church, but whatever it is. They didn't have Twitter, but I can guarantee you they were chattering about what was taking place on this particular day. Jesus was the firstborn of those who slept, and he came forth in a great glorified body. And some people say, what's our body going to be like in heaven? When that resurrection takes place one day, we'll have a glorified body. Those who are in our class on Christology know that we talk about that and hit on that a little bit because, you know, we're kind of tough. Uh, you know, we're, we're just, uh, we like to be traditional. We like to be, uh, to deal with custom. And, and we have an idea that people are walking around in, in some type of, of glorified body there. Now, we have not been raised. That body is still in the ground. That body is still there waiting on that resurrection day that will take place at the time of the last trump. So we know this was not a glorified body at this particular time or bodies that were walking around, but it had to be proof. Uh, appearing to many in the holy city in those days. But I want us to come to one more witness, and that is that it was the convincing witness of his own heart. Everything that the centurion had saw to that particular point was moving him to a moment of decision. Do you know it's not, little, it's not uh, usually one big thing that moves people? It's a culmination and combination of things that began to take place, and the heart is overwhelmingly convinced. Same was true with Lee Strobel as he began to look at the evidence, and he looked at the evidence of a changed life of his wife. He looked at the evidence that was presented in books and historians and those who would speak, and God just resting his heart, I think, it was the convincing witness of his own heart. Verse 54 says, So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, "This Truly, this was the Son of God. The witness of his own heart. He, he knew the proof was there, and he couldn't push it back any longer. Maybe this is the same centurion that was present at the time 
when Jesus was scourged. Maybe the same centurion who was there at many times of many events that took place in Jerusalem. It could have been. You say, well, you don't know that to be true. You don't know that he wasn't. You don't know what he had seen and what he hadn't seen and what God was using all along the path. Uh, he's used a lot of things in your life to bring you to Christ, right? And he uses a lot of things in our lives and others to bring us to Christ. But all of these proofs together began to work on him. Perhaps he was there and he saw the tremendous scourging. He saw the times even when he didn't open his mouth back at the, at, at the thief that blasphemed against him, fulfilling the scripture that he opened not his mouth. Even as a lamb that's led to the slaughter is dumb, he did not open his mouth. Even back uh, at times to Pilate, to Herod, to those who were coming against him. Perhaps he is witnessing some of these things that have taken place. So we look at the convincing proof of the cross and what took place there. It's enough to move us. Some would wonder, you know, in this day and time where you kind of have to change your preaching, you kind of have to speak, to people's needs. You kind of need to have really uh, something that's a little bit easier to swallow because, you know, as Paul said, that the preaching of the cross is an offense and a stumbling block to many people. Let's still say it's by the cross that we can be saved. It's through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and what took place there. And so we've got to preach the cross. And that's why when we think about that, we think about the fact that that that. I'm determined not to know anything but Christ in him crucified. Paul said over and over again that he says, listen, I count all things as dung. I count them as a waste, as a loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Woe unto me if I preach not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If I do not lift up the cross, I have spoken in vain. Man can't make himself righteous before God. It's only through the cross. So as we're challenged in this day and time to think about what we do and how we do it and how we preach and trying to get a message that may draw a big crowd, our job is to lift up the Lord Jesus Christ because he said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all manner of men unto myself. And that is our job today. What was it that caused those early apostles, their entire life to be changed. Within the first five weeks of the death of the Lord Jesus and his resurrection, within five weeks' time, we know that there were at least 10,000 followers and all of his disciples willing to go to death, all of the martyrs that went to their own death. Why were they willing to be skinned alive, to be beheaded, and Peter to be crucified upside down? For those that were, were thrust through, those who lost their head because they knew the power of the cross. Listen, it's still a convincing power today, and it's a cross that we need to preach to the Lord Jesus Christ. My prayer for you is that you'll always stay close to the cross. Preach it this Easter season, but preach it every season. It's always in season. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the power of the cross. It's a convincing power that led the centurion to his knees. Lord, as some believe this could have been uh, Cornelius, uh, maybe it may have not been. We could speculate all day long, but we know this, the centurion's life was changed, and even the other soldiers who witnessed the events of that particular day. Father, help us never to apologize, never to back up, never to quit, but always to proclaim 
the gospel of Christ. Woe to us if we preach not the cross of Christ and the gospel, uh, of course, of, of the forgiveness and the, the opportunity to receive uh, eternal life and forgiveness of sin. Lord, help us to have that power. I pray for each person here today as they preach, as they teach, as they witness on a daily basis that we'll tell the truth and the hope of the cross of Christ. It's still convincing people today. So, Father, would you deal in a wonderful way, empower us by your Holy Spirit, convince by your convicting Holy Spirit. We'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.